Our Father, uh, our Savior Jesus prayed for us, sanctify them in your truth, your word is truth. So we trust you this morning that as we come to your word, you are indeed conforming us uh, to the image of our elder brother, and we find no source of true knowledge or true joy or contentment that rivals even the smallest portion of your perfect word. So we thank you this morning for this opportunity to hear your words the very words of our God, and may we, your people, be illumined by your Spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand, read God's Word. Ten B through sixteen of chapter two. Bold and willful. They do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, though greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters which they, of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as a wage for their wrongdoing. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime, their blots and blemishes, reviling in their deceptions, while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. This is the word of God. You may be seated. So a conservative and a liberal arguing about gun control... The liberal says, you know, I think the government should be more strict in regulating firearms because guns kill people. And the conservative says, well, you would think that because you're just a Democrat. Now, what type of argument is that? Ad hominem. Ad hominem argument is one in which an attack is aimed toward the person and not at the argument. Our text today is one of the harsher texts in the Bible. Uh, and, you know, is Peter just attacking these teachers, these false teachers, ad hominem? Is he just angry at them? Is this a hate-fueled tirade? Is it his purpose to malign their character so that his audience kind of views them as just morons? Or is there actual substance to Peter's arguments? Peter's language and tone are indeed condemnatory. And in our culture, of course, that is an unacceptable tone to have. But what we do find is that Peter actually has substance to these arguments. These are harsh words, but there's weight and there's truth to everything he says. And this is a very serious issue. And what we find is that it, in fact, warrants Peter's tone. So there's three real, uh, substantial claims that Peter makes here that we'll go through. First, 
that they teach attractive doctrine which leads to destruction. Second, they insatiably exploit the church. And third, they have walked away from the faith. They teach attractive doctrine which leads to destruction. They insatiably exploit the church. And they have walked away from the faith. So first, they teach attractive doctrine which leads to destruction. Go back to 10, 10 through 13. Behold, bold and willful, they do not tremble as they blaspheme the glorious ones. Whereas angels, although greater in might and power, do not pronounce a blasphemous judgment against them before the Lord. But these, like irrational animals, creatures of instinct, born to be caught and destroyed, blaspheming about matters which of which they are ignorant, will also be destroyed in their destruction, suffering wrong as the wage for their wrongdoing. So Peter here calls them animals, unreasoning or irrational animals. Now what's Peter's point in this, these first few verses? Is he just calling them names? No, what he, they are doing here is very serious and a great danger to the saints. And Peter has a legitimate purpose in calling them animals and using this harsh language. Remember, these people are teachers. They occupy a, a position of authority within the church. Saints look to them for instruction and training in godliness. And as such, I, I could be wrong here, but I don't think they're just going to come out in Sunday school and, and, and blaspheme the glorious ones. You know, It says bold and willful, but I don't think it means, well, we're just going to trash everything all the celestial beings right in front of everyone. I think they're more uh, like serpents than that. But rather, I think it is, in fact, their lifestyle and the lifestyle that they promote, which is this brazen disregard for the celestial beings and is therefore blasphemous. Remember, these people are something like Epicureans promoting a type of a licentiousness within the church, loose living. And apparently here as ear-tickling preachers of peace, they have spoken flippantly. They've made light or even slandered the celestial powers that be. I do think the word celestial powers is a good way of, of speaking there about what Peter's talking about, these glorious ones. Um, Calvin thinks he's talking about the magistrates, about the government. But I don't think, that doesn't make sense to me. He, he thinks so because verse 10 ends with that they despise authority. And to me, glorious ones is not really an apt description for the government. Um, <laughs> uh, and also, it doesn't make a lot of sense of, in light of, of the parallel passage in Jude, in Jude 9 and 10. In looking at Jude, we can arrive at something more of a, a fuller definition than even celestial powers. And I think we can uncover in Jude that they were not just blaspheming angels generally, but fallen angels. They were disregarding the, the evil spirits of the world, those rulers, authorities, cosmic powers over this present darkness, the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Um, so Jude 9 and 10 reads, But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. But these people, 
blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. So there in that kind of parallel passage, ignore the um, issue of Moses and the body of Moses. We'll get to Jude in a few months. <laughs> but these these people had total disregard for things they didn't understand, for the wicked and evil uh, celestial beings in the heavenly places. So Peter and Jude don't use this imagery of unreasoning, instinctual beasts as kind of a derogatory slam. It's actually a very apt illustration. Um, You've seen a bear trap. It's just like a trailer with a big barrel on it. You know, not something a bear would see in his natural environs. He wanders around and sees this, and there's bacon grease in there. You'd think he'd be suspicious of this big barrel on wheels, but all he can see is the bacon grease, so he goes in. Another illustration, you've probably heard of like monkey traps or raccoon traps where they have a small hole and they put their hand in, grab like a peanut, and but they won't let go to get their hand out of the jar, and, and the bait ends up being their demise, and they won't let go. Unreasoning animals. In their greed and lust, the false teachers take hold of the bait and they will not let go. They're trapped by it. As a result, they cause destruction and do wrong to many. I think that's Peter's point, that they will also be destroyed in their destruction. Suffering wrong is the wage for their wrongdoing. They lead others to destruction by their teaching and they walk the same path. They will serve that which they eat, or they eat that which they serve. And as they make a shipwreck of other people's faith, they also slam into the hidden reef. So point one is that they teach attractive doctrine which leads to destruction. False teachers do sound nice. Their doctrines are always very attractive. You know, it could be more subtle than this, but some obvious one, you know, you have Jesus and have your pet sin, and that sin is actually just a part of who God made you to be, perhaps they might say. They disregard the devil. The devil doesn't really attack us. Well, what, what judgment? There's no judgment. God is love. Bacon grease is tasty. Eat it. Eat, drink, and be merry. These people who speak attractive doctrines speak in ignorance. They blaspheme about things that they don't know anything about. And as a result, they damn many and will find themselves receiving at the end a stricter judgment because they're teachers, and it will not be a favorable judgment. This serves as a warning to us, I think, uh, first as teachers or elders in the church. James says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Hebrews 13 says that leaders are keeping watch over souls as those who will have to give an account. The business of teaching, guiding, leading, shepherding the flock of God is serious business and we must beware of flippancy and ignorance as we teach. I think there may be a special danger in a setting like ours where We're small to let our guard down as if we're kind of running a Bible study here and it's not the church. But as long as we have the sacraments, preaching, and church discipline, we are the church of Jesus Christ. 
and as such we undertake a task with untold weight. So in that task we must follow the great shepherd who is truth himself. We must teach faithfully all that the apostles taught and what Jesus taught. And we must do so pleading that the Holy Spirit would help us in our weakness. And it's also a warning to all of us generally that we need to be careful who it is that we listen to. We need to test carefully the teachings that we hear according to Scripture. They may sound attractive, but all the devil's schemes are always attractive. Is what they are teaching in line with Scripture? Is it in line with what spirit-illumined men and women of God through history of the church have said about Scripture? We must be careful because we do not want to share in their destruction. Now that said, if we are regenerate saints, we can be confident that the Holy Spirit will lead us into all truth. And we should pray that he does so increasingly throughout our lives. The second legitimate grounds for condemnation from Peter is that they insatiably exploit the church. False teachers insatiably exploit the church. 13 and 14. They count it pleasure to revel in the daytime. They are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. They have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. They entice unsteady souls. They have hearts trained in greed, accursed children. So it's important to realize that the destruction they cause is within the church. Peter's not just broadly condemning pagans at large. These are false teachers in the church causing destruction within the church. Peter describes here kind of five destructive actions or attributes which disturb and exploit the church. Uh, first, they count it a pleasure to revel in the daytime, which I take to mean that they're both unrepentant in their sin and invitational in their sin. They're unrepentant, calling good evil and evil good. Do what makes us happy and don't be ashamed of it. And they are invitational. They want us to join. Like in First Peter, they're surprised when they don't join you when you don't join them in the flood of debauchery. I liked what we learned a few weeks ago at a midweek study at Rosaria Butterfield was talking about the difference between true community and false community. In a place where false community exists, idols go unchecked. But in true Christian community, love abounds, but love also does not let idols go unchecked. The second uh, thing that they do, which brings destruction to the church, is that they are blots and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions while they feast with you. So, again, they're attractive to the people around, but in fact they are blots and blemishes, ugly spots, stains. They're blights on the cross because they continue to walk in sin while they claim the blood of the cross. They're blights on the church because immorality in the church causes the world to scoff at us, and because Christ's bride is to be one who is supposed to be without spot or blemish. They are dark, dark blotches, gangrenous rot trying to spread throughout the body. 
And like a con man, they befriend us. They join us at the table. And all the while, their shifty eyes are looking for something that they can steal, something to take for themselves. Third, they have eyes full of adultery, insatiable for sin. So they stand in the position of teachers, but their desires of their inner heart betrays them as being false. Fourth, they, are un, they entice unsteady souls. So they prey on the easy targets. They look for those who have not been well taught, for the vulnerable souls, those who are wavering in the truth. Literally here, that word entice is to take or catch with bait. That bear trap. They're using the bear trap even though they themselves are going in the bear trap. They're victims of the same trap that they employ. Fifth, they have hearts trained in greed. Hearts trained in greed. That's uh, gymnazo, which we get the word gymnasium from. It's sort of this idea of athletic training, wherein your muscles, by repetition, are built up. The muscle, muscle tissues here, it's their heart that's trained in greed. The muscle tissues of their heart grow stronger day by day as they continuously pump the blood of desire and greed through their veins. These are tough words, harsh words, but they're warranted words. Illustration, we, there's a movie out. Uh, the uh, It's called The American Gospel. It just came out, kind of exposing some of the prosperity gospel. And in it, uh, it talks about Benny Hinn and, and Costi Hinn. Benny Hinn's nephew is featured in it. Quite a bit. And, and Kosti Hinn has come out of that movement. He used to be a catcher. When he would knock the people over, he would catch them. He's a big, strong baseball player guy. And Kosti Hinn is featured in this movie quite a bit. And now he's a Reformed Baptist pastor, I believe, and condemns the movement. But he talks in that film, um, and it's just heartbreaking. You know, The people who go up on stage to get healed are never the people on crutches or the dying children. And he talks about seeing women holding dying children in their arms in the back of the the auditorium. And he's kind of realized now, we were living large off of those people's money. We were exploiting them with false words. They would go and rent or get $20,000 a night hotel rooms off of people whose children were dying. His cars growing up were Hummers and fancy cars. I mean, they exploited people with false words. Now, as as I was thinking about these things, I was struck by the fact, you know, I have to kind of turn to a noted heretic to illustrate the point. Benny Hinn is a noted heretic. I don't know anyone personally that I'm aware of that would kind of match Peter's description one for one. Um, But it kind of got me thinking about how does this really apply to us today? How can we implement Peter's sort of implicit warning to steer clear of these types of people? I think in the spirit of that, it's helpful to identify some movements um, and ideas which are in the kind of broader church and which can subtly creep into any church. Um, So the first and most obvious one is the prosperity gospel, which we talked about, you know, that that idea that God is out for our earthly temporal 
personal success and thriving. Um, another one is that's kind of obvious that creeps into the church is liberalism, this sort of undermining of the veracity of Scripture, the redefinition of Christian terminology. There are some ancient gospels that are <laughs> gospels, heresies that creep up uh, time and time again, and we see them present today. Uh, Platonism, this whole idea that the spirit world is good and the material world is bad. Uh, Gnosticism, we must attain to some kind of higher plane of knowledge to really know God. We see that a lot in uh, hyper charismatic circles or second blessing type of circles. Pelagianism. God leaves salvation to human will and obedience would not be required unless it were possible. Uh, I believe Arminians are brothers, but it is indeed a problem when you can say that someone is a semi-heretic, a semi-Pelagian. <laughs> These things creep into the church. I, mean, I was just talking the other day about the history of Presbyterianism, and you see people get frustrated with the doctrines of grace, break off over that or something similar, and then they end up going downhill from there. Charles Finney was one such person. Uh, There are various Trinitarian heresies that if if we would read the confessions that we we read this morning, we wouldn't have such a problem with, or the creeds. Um, One's Examples, like Michael said this morning, most many people in, in evangelicalism are functional modalists. They believe that God is one who appears in different forms, water, ice, and steam, for example, rather than being one God with three distinct persons. So all of those ancient heresies are present today. Uh, they're biblical heresies that we see in the, in the New Testament. Antinomianism, this whole idea of love, without repentance, freedom from the law rather than freedom to obey the law. Uh, And on the other side, legalism or Pharisaism, adding laws to God's law that are not God's law. We have to watch our own hearts for these more subtle issues of the hearts because unfortunately these things swirl around us in a a very complex cocktail and, and we absorb it, we do absorb it. Well, we are not heretics, I presume. Nobody's a heretic. But heretics do usually arise out of two or three generations of unchecked pseudo-orthodoxy. We need to be steady, steady souls, confirmed in truth so that we are not enticed, baited, firmly established in truth. And really, that's the point of this letter I think, is to inspire confidence in truth which has been passed down through the prophets and apostles so that we can be assured that on the day of the Lord we know where we stand. We do indeed have the trustworthy word as taught. We do have 2,000 years of faithful, spirit-illumined, codified orthodoxy in the great creeds and confessions which do not add to scripture but faithfully represent and expound it. So we have what we need to know the truth and to hold fast in faith amidst those battering waves of doctrine. All of that to kind of say, point number two is that they insatiably exploit the church. And the result then, P2, 
Peter says, is they are accursed children. Accursed children. I take that to mean they are covenant breakers. They were members of the covenant community. Children with us, co-heirs. And are now accursed. We do not want to be unsteady souls who are swept away along with them. Peter's third legitimate uh, beef with the false teachers is that they forsake the faith. They forsake the faith, 15 and 16. Forsaking the right way, they have gone astray. They have followed the way of Balaam, the son of Beor, who loved gain from wrongdoing, but was rebuked for his own transgression. A speechless donkey spoke with a human voice and restrained the prophet's madness. Balaam's an interesting figure. He kind of pops up throughout Scripture. It's weird how often he pops up. Uh, and the Jews hated Balaam. They really did not like him. He was the subject of rabbinic writings, and they painted him as this perverted, greedy scoundrel, which I didn't understand at first, but as I dug into it, he really was. Um, and ultimately, the Israelites killed him, it says, with a sword. So the story of Balaam, if we're not familiar, is, is Israel is nearing the promised land, and they're camped in the plains of Moab, this, the other side of the Jordan. God, through the Israelites, had demolished the Amorites by the hand of Israel, which left Moab quaking in their boots. They were terrified of what this strange nation wandering through the, the desert was going to do to them. And so king of Moab, Balak, had this idea to call upon this known seer um, or prophet, this man named Balaam, who lived near the Euphrates, which I didn't realize that. I always thought he was kind of like just a few doors down, call Balaam over. But he, it says <laughs> elsewhere that he's from Mesopotamia. He's from the Euphrates. So that's at minimum 300 miles away. Go and get this guy and bring him here. <clears throat> Balaam was offered material compensation to curse the Israelites so that Moab could defeat the Israelites. And there was some back and forth. They would offer him stuff. And he said, well, I can only say what God tells me to say, and they, they went back and forth, and ultimately, um, God says <clears throat> to Balaam, if the men have come to you to call you, rise and go with them, but only do what I tell you. So Balaam rose in the morning and saddled his donkey and went with the princes of Moab. Now, it's a little strange there because it seems like he's almost being obedient, but right away, God gets really mad that he goes. So I think there's something there, and we can tell from the rest of Scripture he wasn't supposed to go with them. Um, some have suggested he didn't obey properly that if command, that they really weren't. Maybe they were staying in the tent next door and they never came over that next morning and he just got up and saddled his donkey. I thought maybe, and this is just a strange theory, but by the fact that he saddled his donkey, maybe there's something there. He put on money bags or something. But God is angry that Balaam goes. And it's clear from elsewhere in Scripture that Balaam did intend to go for the purpose of cursing God's people for money. Uh, Joshua 24, 9 and 10 is a good example. <clears throat> it says, Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, rose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you, so I delivered you out of his hand. So you can see there, there's some sense in which Balaam wanted to curse them, but God wouldn't allow him. And in fact, he in some ways 
force Balaam to enunciate uh, blessings rather than curses. So on the journey to to this, the uh, I guess it'd be Canaan still at the time. Uh, the Lord in His anger sent an angel to stop Balaam, and he blocked the path three different times. And, and the donkey could see the angel, but Balaam couldn't, and the donkey would veer off. And every time Balaam would whack him with a stick or something, or her whack the donkey and get her back on on course. And finally, the donkey squeezes Balaam's foot between herself and a wall, and he just loses it. He's ready to kill her. He says, uh, "This is the account, Numbers twenty-two, twenty." 8 through 30. Then the Lord opened the mouth of the donkey, and she said to Balaam, What have I done to you that you have struck me these three times? And Balaam said to the donkey, Because you have made a fool of me. I wish I had a sword in my hand, for then I would kill you. And the donkey said to Balaam, I Am I not your donkey on which you have ridden all your life long to this day? Is it my habit to treat you this way? And he said, No. So, then God opens Balaam's eyes. He sees the angel standing there, and the angel tells him, You know, if your donkey wouldn't have stopped you, I would have killed you. After this, being corrected, I suppose, by the Lord, Balaam continues, and Balaam takes him up on three different mountains to look over the nation of Israel and to try to get him to curse him. Balaam says every time, you know, bring me altars, we're going to build altars, we're going to sacrifice bulls. Then he goes before the Lord to ask what he should do. And each time, the Lord has him issue a blessing. So the error of Balaam was ultimately his greed, we gather, from the whole of Scripture. He was willing to sacrifice the nation of Israel for material gain. And, and not only that, but apparently if you read from Numbers thirty-one sixteen, we find that Balaam was actually responsible for instigating Israel's whoring with the Moabites and the Midianites, a sto- uh, something that resulted in this plague that killed 24,000 people. And, uh, and that story of Phineas running in and, and spearing a man and woman through an Israelite man and a Midianite woman so all of that was the result of Balaam. So we can tell why the Jews hate Balaam so much. He was a dirty scoundrel. In our text, the false teachers are said to have followed in Balaam's error. In their greed, they have apostatized themselves. They forsake the faith. This is an active verb here, that they, they forsook in other words, they're forsaking the right way of their own good pleasure, of their own accord. They're intentionally walking away. That bait is too attractive. They were once un- of us, but now they've strayed off. They've gone out to show us that they're not of us. They are indeed those accursed children. They were a part of the visible covenant family of God, and they have wandered off. Another irony, there's a few ironies in this text, but it's, it's funny that Peter calls them beasts, and here it is, a, a, just a humble beast that rebukes Balaam. I think the episode with the donkey is meant to show Balaam something and to show us something, and that is God doesn't need Balaam. God doesn't, Balaam is a prophet of the Lord, to be sure, 
but he does not have the freedom to say whatever he wishes on God's behalf. He may only say what the Lord puts in his mouth. And to make this point to Balaam, God in dramatic fashion opens the mouth of a donkey as if to say, I can speak through the mouth of a humble donkey. I don't need you. And in fact, it went further that the donkey rebuked Balaam. False teachers have strayed into the way of Balaam by presuming to speak for the Lord. They have, like Balaam, begun to conflate their own desires with the word of God. And they've used the word of God as a means of gain. And by doing so, they've forsaken the right way and gone astray, putting themselves in the place of God. 1 Timothy 6, 3-5 is a good illustration of the principle here. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. He has an unhealthy craving for controversy and for quarrels about words which produce envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicion, and constant friction among people who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth, imagining that godliness is a means of gain. (coughs) I love what Paul says there, the, the terminology he uses. He says, the sound words of Christ. And that's what we're after. That phrase itself is just reassuring to me. The sound words of Christ. The problem with false teachers is not that they're unfriendly or unlikable or, or it's not that they are stupid. You know, walking in the truth is not a matter of intellect. Carl Sagan was very smart. Walking in truth is a matter of submission to God. And I think sometimes we're, sub- we're, we're tempted to give up trying to understand God's truth. You know, so we, we recognize people are very, very much smarter than I am. They're on all sides of different debates, and I'm just going to give up, and I'm just going to try to live my life the best I can, as pleasing as I can. And we'll leave the arguments up to the smart people. But it's not a matter of who is smart and who isn't. You know, it's true. We may not be the one to solve all the mysteries of the universe and the difficult portions of God's Word. But the Christian life is described as the way of truth. God means for His words to be both understood and thereby lived by. We do not walk in assent to propositions by intellectual superiority. We walk in truth by the power of the Holy Spirit. Many educated, intelligent, bright men and women have walked the road that Balaam walked. Likewise, many uneducated, simple, average Joes have walked the narrow path of the way of truth by faith. So we don't have to be smarter than anyone to hold our teachers to account. We hold the plain gospel truth with which we can compare. Now, of course, I'm not promoting anti-intellectualism, In fact, it's just the opposite. These realities, in fact, free us up and motivate us and liberate us to chase down truth with a fresh ferocity. Because it's not about obtaining a PhD in biblical studies. It's about knowing God and seeking to live a life that is pleasing to Him. Peter warns 
against false teachers so that we might live that life and not stray from the way. To summarize here then, Peter's intensity in this passage is, again, not an ad hominem attack. Just put it very simply, Peter is condemning the false prophets for their attractive doctrines which lead to destruction, insatiable exploitation of the church, and forsaking the faith. And he thereby also encourages the true saints to steer well clear of them and to persist in the true faith. I was working through this passage, I kind of began to ask myself, where is Christ in this passage? Where is the gospel in this difficult passage? Because I'm of the conviction that Christ and the gospel should be in every sermon, um, and I don't like to pigeonhole it into every sermon and have a gospel presentation every time, but I'm of the conviction that the Bible, the way it's constructed, is that everything points to Christ in some sense. And so I was trying to think about what, how, how is Christ in this passage? And, you know, we could go many directions with that. We could talk about the, the righteous judgment of God, and that would be one way to go. But I kind of thought, you know, it's really very simple. The, the place that God, the gospel is in this passage is this very simple statement, truth matters. Because Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but by me. <clears throat> to these false teachers perverting the truth, that is a very serious issue. But to have the truth is to have Jesus Christ. And by his grace, we have been saved. So we should be thankful. We shouldn't be like the, the tax collector and the publican, like beating our chest, I'm glad I'm not a false teacher grateful that God has pulled us out of this as Jude says, rescued us out of the fire. So I encourage us this morning to cling to the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. Amen.